Well, if you would, please open your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 4. Our text this morning is Mark 4, verses 30 through 34. And we're coming to the conclusion of Mark's record of Jesus teaching in parables today. And uh, as I was preparing, getting things ready together this week, thinking about that, it's uh, with a little bit of sadness that uh, we conclude this section. Uh, It's been very uh, helpful for me. Uh, The preacher, I think, probably gets the great benefit of being able to dig in and study and understand, search out the things of the Word of God and just a, a precious portion of Scripture to hear and to think about Jesus sitting there in a boat, speaking to the multitudes of desperate people. And on either side of this teaching in Mark's gospel, we have a record of what these desperate people look like, people with leprosy, people who were facing medical issues for years and years and years in desperate conditions. Uh, people with sick and dying family members, people with deep spiritual needs, spiritual darkness, walking in spiritual darkness and in the ignorance of their sinful ways. And all of that is represented in the great large crowd that Jesus is speaking to as identified in verse 2 of this chapter. And it's fascinating that Jesus, in dealing with desperate people, with all of the representative cases of desperation around him, taught them about the kingdom of God. In Matthew 6 and verse 33, Jesus, as he instructs us about something we all struggle with at one time or another, sometimes chronically, anxiety sinful anxiety, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so the kingdom of God, the teaching of the kingdom of God is absolutely essential to learn how to deal with life as we await the fullness of the coming of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ. In these parables, Jesus has taken kingdom teaching, broad, spectacular, majestic kingdom teaching, the kingdom of God, and he's wrapped it with gentle simplicity of these parables for clarity to those whom he is calling, to graciously conceal truth to those that are rejecting, but it is the kingdom teaching. It is teaching of the kingdom of God. In our text, Jesus begins this last parable in Mark 4 by saying in verse 30, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them 
as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Once again, we're explicitly told that this parable is a parable about the kingdom of God. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? For what parable shall we use for it? I just want to take a moment and lead us to think about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Well, here's a broad description of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, in its broadest sense, represents the rule of God over creation, over history, and over individuals. Man rejects this rule. We reject the rule inherently, innately, because of our sinful condition inherited in Adam. We are guilty by imputation of Adam's guilt to us. Man rejects God's rule, but God reestablished His rule and reestablishes it through Jesus Christ. Individually, through redemption, collectively in the church, and ultimately in the new heavens and new earth. There will be a great final separation that will take place when all those rejecting God's reign will be permanently condemned to endure His wrath, and all those turning to Christ will enjoy eternal fellowship in His gracious presence. In this age... In the last days, in the church age, in this age, the kingdom of God is a spiritual rule of God in the lives of the redeemed. Paul says in Romans fourteen seventeen, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace. And he's speaking to the church and, and exhorting them and living in Christ. In this age, the kingdom of God is a spiritual rule of God in the lives of the redeemed. But there is a future culmination that's anticipated by those in Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as he exhorts the Corinthians about their lifestyle, he gives a list of what they were outside of Christ, the the sin that characterized their lives. And he says, people like that do not inherit the kingdom of God, but such were some of you. And you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified. And the implication is that because you were washed, because you were sanctified, because you are justified in Christ, you will inherit the kingdom of God. So we could put it in these terms that right now, Right now, the kingdom of God consists of spiritual realities that dictate daily priorities. Spiritual realities that dictate daily priorities. Again, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And if you would, turn over to that passage in Romans chapter 14. And again, this is just by way of introduction to get our minds thinking about the kingdom of God. 
about what Jesus is going to be teaching about through this in this parable and the significance of that. In Romans 14, and just to think about Romans, the first 11 chapters, Paul gives a masterful, obviously it's inspired, clarification of the gospel. And then in chapter 12 following, he works out what does the gospel look like as it works itself out in the lives of believers. And in Romans 14, he's dealing with how we interact with one another concerning different uh, aspects of, of conscience and uh, particularly meat sacrifice to idols is, is one of the things that is being handled, what one eats. And in verse 17, Paul says this, like in that argument and as he's fostering seeking to foster unity in the church with people who have different convictions about things, he says this, "...the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding." So Paul is, as he's instructing the Romans here, he's saying, look, you're part of the kingdom of God in Christ. Let the spiritual realities dictate the daily priorities, even in your interaction with one another. Let the fact that you're unified in Christ, that every Christian is bought with the same thing, the blood of Christ, Let that be your rallying point. Let the righteousness of Christ and the peace of God that fills your soul in Christ, let that be your point of coming together and dismiss these things that would create division in the church. So again, the kingdom of God, now as we await the return of Christ, the kingdom of God consists of spiritual realities that dictate daily priorities. And let's be clear about what entrance into the kingdom of God looks like. Entrance into the kingdom of God comes only by attaining the righteousness of God. Entrance into the kingdom of God comes only by attaining the righteousness of God, God's righteousness. We have to have a righteousness that is not our own. The kingdom of God is a place of holiness. It's a place of true justice. It's a place of purity. It's a place that must be entered not in our own righteousness. It's impossible. But only on the righteousness of God. And that was provided for us through Jesus Christ. We enter the kingdom of God by repenting of our sins and turning to Jesus Christ. By faith alone in Christ alone and turning to Christ as when we came into existence 
Adam's sin, the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to us the moment we came into existence. When we come to Christ, when we turn to Christ, the righteousness of Christ in the same way, the fullness of the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. It's given to us. It's credited to us. For by faith, we are saved. We're justified by faith, and therefore we have peace with God. And it's only through Christ, only in Christ, that we gain, that we're given by grace, God's righteousness, God's righteousness, that we might enter the kingdom of God, that we might be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Those in Christ have the righteousness of Christ. Those in Christ have their sins entirely paid for by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is how you enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is preaching the kingdom of God, remember? Mark tells us in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, he summarizes the ministry of Christ. And the ministry of Christ is that the time, he proclaims, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe the gospel. And so when we come to Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God in these parables, as we come to this last one, let's recover the themes that Jesus has taught leading up to this point. In the parable of the sower, Jesus taught that we need to receive God's Word to enter the kingdom of God. We have to receive what God says about who He is and what God says about who we are. We have to receive God's Word to enter the kingdom of God. In the parable of the lamp and the measure, The theme of that parable was to listen to God's Son to understand the kingdom of God. We come in and we receive God's Word, and Paul states multiple times in Colossians that as as he is burdened for that church to continue to grow, he's burdened that they would understand, that they would continue to understand the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ so that they would not be, be deceived by the vain philosophies of man. So we receive God's Word to enter the kingdom of God, and we continue to look to God's Son to understand life in the kingdom of God, to understand what God has done in transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Last week, we looked at the parable of the seed and noted how Jesus was moving from the individual responses to the general progression of the kingdom of God. And the theme tied in with that parable is that the kingdom of God will certainly succeed. It might not look like it, but the kingdom of God is tied to the Word of God, the Word of God that proves true, the Word of God that will never fail. And so the kingdom of God will certainly succeed. In a, in a life where there is much uncertainty, there's one thing that is certain, and that is that the kingdom of God will succeed. 
Coming to this last parable, the theme that we'll look at this morning is that the kingdom of God will be the greatest kingdom. The kingdom of God will be the greatest kingdom. And you can see the progression of Jesus' teaching. Receive the word of God to enter the kingdom of God. Listen to God's Son to understand the kingdom of God. Well, why? Why is that so important? Because the kingdom of God will certainly succeed and the kingdom of God will be the greatest kingdom. No kingdom, no civilization, no empire is eternal. The kingdom of God only is eternal. The words that Jesus speaks to us carry eternal implications. Jesus said in John chapter 6, the words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. And so this morning as we conclude this study of Jesus' teaching, we're going to look at this in two parts this morning. Part one is a final lesson about the kingdom of God. And part two, you're going to be shocked at the creativity of this part two. Closing notes on the parables. (laughs) So a final lesson about the kingdom of God, and then a few closing notes on the parables. Jesus says in verse 30, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in it. The theme here is that the kingdom of God will be the greatest kingdom. Let's notice, first of all, the nature of this parable. It's a picture of contrast, a picture of contrast. Last week, when we looked at the parable of the seed, Jesus gave us a picture of certainty. The kingdom of God is as certain as the cycles of of sowing and harvest. And the certainty of those cycles are rooted in the promise of God that it would not cease while the earth remains. And so he gave us a picture of certainty. This picture is a picture of contrast. And so when we understand, when we identify what is happening in the parable, it helps us and leads us to the single main point within the parable. Jesus begins by emphasizing the smallness of the mustard seed. It's like a grain of mustard seed in verse 31, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Now, technically, a number of people have noted that the the mustard seed is not the smallest seed ever. And what Jesus is doing is, is something very common in the imparting of parables, he's, he's using, making a statement of hyperbole to make the point, but the mustard seed is extremely small. We're talking one to two millimeters in diameter. It's very small, very small. My mind goes to a ruler, and I'm thinking one to two millimeters, right? I can hardly even make my fingers get that close without touching it's a small seed. 
And within that seed, within that seed is everything necessary for that seed to become a plant that's anywhere from 6 to 15 feet high with large branches that birds come to nest in. One to two millimeters. And you put it in the ground 15 feet high. Birds coming to have their home in that shrub. Jesus emphasizes the smallness of the mustard seed and then emphasizes the greatness of the full-grown shrub. Look what he says in verse 32, how he kind of piles on statements to emphasize the great size in contrast to the small seed. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Right? The, the, it comes larger than all the plants, puts out large branches. How large? Large enough that birds can come and find refuge in it. All three of those statements emphasize the size of this plant that grew from a seed one to two millimeters in diameter. It's a picture of contrast. And the simplicity of the parable here is startling. It's just very simple. Something small becomes something big. Right? And I'm just repeating myself over and over because, I mean, what else can I say? That's what he's saying. The kingdom of God, like the mustard seed, begins small. It begins small, but will have a large, great outcome. So we've established that Jesus presents a picture of contrast with the mustard seed that becomes the mustard shrub, the mustard plant. One to two millimeters to six to 15 feet in size. So let's next consider this contrast. Why, why is Jesus presenting this contrast? Why is he using something small that becomes something large? Well, let's consider that this is a contrast for correction. It's a contrast for correction the small beginning. We've established that it's a picture of contrast. Now let's look at the fact that it's a contrast for correction. The Jews, as they anticipated a Messiah coming, they anticipated a great political ruler that would come and help them throw off the domination of the Romans and restore their nation in a great powerful and a great display of, of powerful victory. That's what they wanted. That's what they desired. This is why they're constantly questioning Christ and asking for signs from heaven. Their, their idea of the coming of the kingdom of God was, was that this would be a, a, a catastrophic event where the Messiah would come and cast off the political powers of Rome. And we see this expectation ingrained in Jesus' disciples. 
Look over at chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 37. We could take a number of examples from the Scriptures. We could even go to chapter 8 where Peter confesses Jesus, and then Jesus says, yes, you're right, and I'm going to the cross, and then Peter rebukes Jesus. Why did he rebuke Jesus? Well, Jesus coming to die was not part of the expectation of Jesus being the Christ. And as Jesus continues to teach his disciples through the statements of the cross, we find that their expectation of the kingdom of God was different than what Jesus was accomplishing And so after he taught on the cross again in verses 33 and 34, James and John, the sons of thunder, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and ask him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, they said, Grant us to sit one at your right hand, and one at your left in glory. Right? They're, they're anticipating this great advent of the kingdom of God and that there's going to be a place for them in glory. They're, they're looking at the glory side of this, the big side of this, the victory side of this. And of course, Jesus then clarifies that no, that's not how the kingdom of God works. That's what the Gentiles do when they rule, but that's not how the kingdom of God works. Whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. A small beginning, a carpenter hanging on a cross. But even after Jesus died and rose again, If you turn over to the book of Acts, chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, we see that the disciples are still, they're still trying to work through what does the kingdom of God look like? What will it be like? In verse 3, as Luke begins his account, speaking of the risen Christ, Talking to the apostles, Luke writes, He presented Himself alive to them after His, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now verse 4, And while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, verse 6. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Do we see a window of what's going on in the apostles' mind? Lord, you've died, you rose, are... Is the kingdom coming now? Jesus says in verse 7, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, 
But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And that's the outline for the book of Acts. That's what we find happening. We find the gospel of the kingdom of God expanding through the apostolic witness powered by the Holy Spirit and what is established in the book of Acts. The church. The church. The church of Jesus Christ that's endured for over 2,000 years. The church that is the body of Christ. The church that is the pillar and the buttress of the truth as it clings to the confession of the Lord Jesus Christ and as it holds forth the word of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to all nations. This is the advance of the kingdom of God. And it started with 12 working men that Christ called to himself to be his authoritative agents of revelation to build the church, to be the founders of the church that would be a worldwide movement for millennium after millennium until the coming of Jesus Christ. It's a mustard seed. It starts small and it grows. No, the kingdom of God isn't coming now, Jews and apostles. It's not coming immediately with Great fanfare, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that small seems inconsequential, but that will grow. And folks, as we think about God's plan for the kingdom of God, how God has expanded the church throughout all ages, it gives us great comfort and contentment and what God does in the little things. Growth in Christ as we understand the Word of God, as we understand how God has ordained the gospel to spread. Growth in Christ, understanding the priorities of Scripture, it brings us a clarity that leads us to contentment. In Christ, to contentment in what He's given to us day by day to do as citizens of the kingdom of God. He doesn't, he doesn't call us to go and, and turn nations upside down into so-called Christian nations. He calls us to take the gospel that has transformed us, that's given us new life, that's made us new creatures in Christ, and to live that out in our homes, to live that out in the, in the vocations that God has given to us, to live that out in the body, the local church that He has placed us in. He calls us to be faithful in these and these little things of, of putting to death what is earthly in us, and day by day, hour by hour, making the choice to not walk in the flesh, but to be filled with the Spirit. It's the little things. The kingdom of God is a mustard seed, 
that will grow, that does grow, that will be great. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he reminded the Corinthians, right, when they were becoming contentious about things and, and, you know, they wanted, they wanted the greatest speakers and they, and they said, you know what, we, we like this speaker. Well, we like this speaker better. And, and Paul said, look, who do you think you are? Because there were not many wise, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. It's about the cross of Christ. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's a small beginning. God's plan was for a Galilean carpenter to die on a wooden cross and establish and accomplish redemption for His people that He would bring in across the years that would constitute an innumerable multitude that one day will gather in heaven and sing praises to Him for all eternity. God's plan was for 12 working men to lay a foundation. Ian Murray, just in describing what took place during the Second Great Awakening, you know, we, we would love to see an awakening, wouldn't we? We would love to see a revival and people come to Christ in mass. And Murray wisely points out that in the genuine aspects of that second great awakening, the places that saw the most fruit were places where there had been pastors ministering for decades. Why was that? Well, when people come to Christ, you have to be able to teach them. There has to be a structure. There has to be places where they can go for teaching. And how many of those pastors that ministered over decades did so sometimes during seasons of discouragement, but they were faithful in the little things. They were faithful in proclaiming Christ. They were faithful in structuring the the minds and souls of the people that God put in front of them week after week to, to structure them according to the truth of Scripture, the clarity of the gospel, the affections of Jesus Christ. It's the small things. And so we remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Whether we define the, the beginning, the, the planting of the mustard seed as the cross, burial, and resurrection of Christ, or the individual acts of obedience and faith to proclaim Christ. I think there's a breadth to what Jesus is speaking about here. On on the one hand, yes, the whole of the kingdom of God is like this mustard seed, but if that's the nature of the kingdom of God, then its citizens also follow the same pattern of being faithful in the little things that God calls them to do as new creatures in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is characterized by small beginnings, the planting of the seeds, the gospel truth that one day grows into the full plant of someone coming to Christ. It's the small things. A contrast for correction, and we need to be reminded of that, don't we? We need to be reminded that Jesus values the small Acts of obedience done in faith. 
They do not go unseen by our Lord. But there also is a contrast for expectation. We've established that Jesus is giving us a picture of contrast. It's a contrast for correction so that we understand the nature of the kingdom of God. But it's also a contrast for expectation. There is a great outcome. Now, when we come to the end of this parable, verse 32, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. We're confronted with many opinions about what those birds mean. Who are those birds? Are the birds Gentiles that that come into the kingdom of God? That's one popular point of interpretation. Another interpretation, are are those birds, do they represent evil? Because birds are evil. We don't know what kind of birds, but birds are evil. Do they represent evil that infiltrates the kingdom of God? What do the birds mean? Well, I don't know. I, I... I probably just shows the simplicity of my thinking. I'm not sure if they mean anything specifically. Jesus just said the the kingdom of God is going to be great. It started with this one to two millimeter mustard seed. Now it's so great that it's the biggest plant with large branches. Well, how large? They're so large that the birds of heaven can nest in them. Now, is there any significance to that? Well, one of the ways that we try to work through questions in Scripture like this is to find other Scripture that might have a a parallel description. So let's turn back in our Bibles to the Old Testament, to Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. Remember that Daniel is a captive in Babylon as Israel has endured the chastening of the Lord and he's serving the king of Babylon. The Lord has been favorable to him and put him in a favorable place. And we have a number of points of revelation that take place through Daniel and his service to the king. One of these is a dream, a second dream that Daniel interprets for King Nebuchadnezzar. And this dream was about a tree. So let's just jump right into Daniel's interpretation that begins in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. Daniel 4, beginning in verse 19. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered him and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached the heaven and was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field found shade, 
and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to the heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. I want to stop right there. The, the, the point that I'm trying to make in this passage is we have a picture. We have a picture here of a tree where the birds of the air come, and Daniel makes the interpretation and says, now the significance of this, King Nebuchadnezzar, is that you're the greatest. Right now, you're the greatest in the earth. And everyone looks to you. It represents your greatness. And so if we think about what Jesus says of the birds of the air, and you know, think about the, the audience that Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to, he's speaking to Jews. They, they would know these scriptures. They would have these pictures in their minds. And Jesus emphasizes with that picture of the birds of the air, the greatness of the kingdom of God. It starts as a one to two millimeter seed. It becomes the greatest in all the earth. The kingdom of God will be the greatest kingdom. And the imagery of the birds is serving to emphasize the largeness of that shrub in contrast to its beginning and the ultimate greatness of the kingdom of God. Now, certainly that includes the fact that many Gentiles will come to the Lord. That's us. How thankful we are that that is true. The gospel expanded beyond the Jews and we're all one in Christ. But if we think about the expectation that Jesus lays out, remember we've seen a contrast for correction, but now we're looking at this as a contrast for expectation. When we think about the expectation, there are things happening right now as God builds His church, as the kingdom of God advances through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are things happening now that will ultimately crescendo in an eternity of worship. And, and I want us to take a, a moment and look at just three passages that lay out the expectation for us. What does it mean that the kingdom of God is going to be the greatest kingdom? And how does that play out right now? Well, turn first of all to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Peter is encouraging those who are in Christ and who are even suffering about their position in Christ. And he says to them right now, as those who have been, as those who have been given new life by the gospel, by the word of God, he says to them right now in chapter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, speaking of Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So what's happening now is as the gospel of God transforms us and transfers us from the dominion of of darkness to the kingdom of his son, well, God builds us up into a holy dwelling and, and we're offering now, we're offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is a great thing. As we respond to the word of God, as, as Christ continues to form us into his character, we're, we're being formed to offer to God what has eternal value. If you turn or, or look down to, to verse 9, he continues to describe what is taking place in the people of God. But you are a chosen race a holy priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You are, you are a chosen race, a holy priesthood, a holy nation. And by the way, he's not talking about any nation now. He's talking about the people of God. And as such, as such, you, you live here as exiles. Peter writes his epistle to elect exiles. That's how he starts it. You're exiles of this world. Why? Because you're waiting for the ultimate culmination of the kingdom of God. And you live in such a way so that on that day, on that day when the visitation of God comes, the revelation of Jesus Christ, you've lived in such a way that those around you, even those who oppose the gospel, glorify God because of your testimony as citizens of the kingdom of God. That day is coming. And if we turn over to Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, we see a description of the throne room of heaven. And it's a song in verse 9. There's a song being offered to the Lamb to the Lamb that was slain to redeem people. And they sang a new song, Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. This is the ultimate culmination. This is the expectation of the greatness of the kingdom of God. 
It continues on to describe what John saw there in heaven in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And this begins revelation. And we we know who's in control of the whole thing as the record continues. But if you turn toward the end to chapter 19 as we think about the great expectation the great expectation of the kingdom of God in Revelation 19 we have we have the last human speech recorded in scripture the first human speech was Adam when he rejoiced in the wife that God had given to him man in his innocence worshiping God. Now in the last recorded human speech in Revelation 19 and verses 6 through 8, we have man glorified. Man glorified. And what is he doing? What is his speech indicating? He is responding to God and he's responding to the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ. And here's what is described Revelation 9 verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It will be granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure." And that praise to God, that praise to the Almighty, that, that, that crescendo of praise from the multitudes, the innumerable multitudes of people gathered in heaven, it follows chapter 18 where the, the, the kingdoms of the earth have been overthrown, the world system has been overthrown, and God's people in heaven say, hallelujah, the Lamb reigns. The kingdom of God will be the greatest kingdom. There is a great expectation. The final lesson that Jesus gives to us is that the kingdom of God will be the greatest kingdom. Receive the word. Listen to the Son. The kingdom of God will succeed, and it will be the greatest kingdom. Well, let's look at just a couple closing notes now on the parables. Verse 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Mark concludes this account and tells us that Jesus used parables to do what? To teach the Word, right? And so that's why we have great, uh, we, we look so hard at the Scripture to interpret the parables. 
that Jesus puts before us because they are Him teaching the Word. He used the parables to teach the Word. It goes on and says that He spoke as they were able to hear it. Christ used parables to plant the truth. We don't know how everyone who heard responded. The disciples and the apostles would learn and the truth would grow in their own understanding. But Jesus was using these parables and, and speaking with a, with a concern to give the people what they were able to hear. And he planted the truth. And this just demonstrates the wisdom of the Lord, doesn't it? That he understands our frame. He understands that sometimes the, the seed of the truth just needs to be planted. And how often has it been that we've heard something preached, we've read a scripture, maybe years past, and then one day as we grow in Christ, as we learn, as we have need, the truth breaks upon our understanding. The scripture was planted, the truth was planted. But then in verse 34, we're told that privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Christ used the parables to teach the word. He used the parables to plant the truth. And he used the parables to prepare his apostles. In Matthew chapter 13 and verses 51 and 52, as Jesus explains some of those parables, he tells his disciples that they are being prepared as scribes to bring out treasure of the kingdom of God. And what we've already seen as we've looked at different passages in the epistles is that the, the apostles, they grasped the teaching in time as the Holy Spirit came and gave them uh, the ability to remember what Jesus said. They grasped the teaching and they filled it out for the church of the Lord. And again, it helps us to understand as we interpret the parables that they must harmonize with the apostolic witness. They were part of Jesus preparing His disciples to preach the Word and to establish the church. And so as we conclude this section, the parables leave you with truth to meditate on, and they also give us tools to proclaim Christ. As we go out as disciples of Christ, seeking to obey the Lord and call others to submit to the King, call others to repent and believe the gospel, right? The Lord has given us a progression here. Friend, friend who is outside of the kingdom, friend who is under the dominion of darkness, receive, receive God's word to enter the kingdom of God. You must receive God's word. Friend, listen, listen to God's Son to understand the kingdom of God and understand that the kingdom of God, even though it might not look like it right now, even though it looks weak and insignificant, understand that the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, it will certainly succeed. And not only will it certainly succeed, but it will be the greatest kingdom. And one day you will stand before the King. Oh, receive God's Word. Turn 
to the Son. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Lord Jesus, oh, we thank you so much that you came to earth to provide our redemption for the glory of God. We thank you that you redeemed us, that you saved us, that you made us alive, that we might do the good works that were prepared in eternity for us to walk in them. We praise you for the teaching that you delivered while you were on earth. And Lord Jesus, we we so anticipate the day when we will see you face to face. We ask that your word delivered today, that we would receive it, that we would be not only hearers, but doers of the word. We pray, Lord, for those that are outside of the kingdom, that have heard the message of the kingdom, that have heard the truth that the kingdom of God will prevail. Lord God, we pray that you would have mercy on them and draw them to yourself. We love you. We thank you for the time we've had. We thank you for your people gathered today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com, teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.